Well, it is reported that students enrolled in Charles Spurgeon's Preacher's College would be given a text on the spot and told to preach it just then in front of Spurgeon and his staff. On one such occasion, a young man was given the subject of the Bible character Zacchaeus. He stood before his daunting audience, certainly the finest preacher of his time, perhaps the finest preacher of all time, excluding Jesus, of course, and said, Zacchaeus was of little stature, so am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree, so am I. Zacchaeus came down, and so will I. And he sat down. I would venture to say that few first sermons are as memorable as that one. I wonder how many of those here today have had the privilege to preach. Anybody had to preach a sermon or two from time to time? Oh, yeah. Look, some of the hands are like this. Like, (laughs) sad to say yes. I mean, yes, I've preached. Well, if you have had the privilege to preach, I wonder how many of you would recall your very first sermon. I personally do not recall the first sermon I ever preached, owing mostly to all the energy I have expended trying to forget it. (laughs) If you have ever preached or put together a sermon, you may have found that it's not as easy as you thought it was going to be. That (laughs) That whole joke about the pastor working one hour a week is quite silly. Crafting a message can be difficult. Delivering a message can be daunting. In fact, most of us who've had the privilege to preach probably, even though we may not remember exactly the text or the big idea that we were trying to get across in that moment, most of us will remember how we felt when we went into that pulpit. Few preachers that I know are proud of their first offerings. Most, I believe, would rather forget Not just the first few, and I'm not kidding here, but the first few hundred (laughs) sermons that they ever preached. And that makes what we're about to uh, tackle this morning and what we've already read, what Brent read for us, all the more remarkable. This, as uh, near as we can tell, is the first uh, recorded Christian sermon, the first sermon delivered by the Apostle Peter And unlike the vast majority of inaugural sermons, it's good. It's really good. Some even say it's his best. But before we get to it, let's pause for one more prayer. Our Father and our God, it is our privilege to sit under your word. We are so grateful that every time we open your book, we hear your voice. God, you speak. You spoke then, you speak now. And we pray that you will speak into our hearts and minds what you want us to hear, what you want us to know, so that we can, in fact, be changed, conformed more to the likeness of your Son, our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we ask. Amen. So our passage this morning is a continuation of the answer to the question that was asked back in Acts chapter 2 and verse 12 regarding the phenomena of Pentecost where the query is made, what does this mean? So in verses 13 to 21, we looked at those last week, Peter gives an explanation for the activity of that day. It was a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy and the keeping of God's promise that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all 
flesh. Today we see Peter take his rhetoric to the next level. And he moves from explanation into confrontation and then ends his answer to the question, his sermon, with an expectation. So, But before we get there, I want to give credit this morning for the outline that I'm working with. It comes from uh, Dr. Stephen Smith from his excellent book, Rediscovering the Voice of God. And in that work, he breaks it down. He takes this section of Acts and he breaks it down into three sections. I thought, he did such a great job with that. Why would I try to reinvent the wheel? And he, he, he breaks Acts down into X, Acts 2 into explanation, confrontation, and expectation. So we owe this to him in part. Explanation, right? That's what we covered last week. This that you observe, this phenomena of Pentecost, these people speaking in all these different languages, this that you observed is what was predicted by the prophet Joel. It is the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower God's people uh, and to live in the people of God. So that's the explanation now to second, the second part of Peter's message, confrontation. The immediate audience, of course, for Peter's message here includes devout men from all nations under heaven. We've covered that already as we've made our way through the book of Acts. They have come to Jerusalem to worship during this specific festival of weeks, Pentecost, a harvest festival that takes place 50 days after Passover. That's where you get the Pentecost, the Greek 50. So they are sympathetic. This audience is sympathetic, at least in one way, in that they are pious. They are God-fearers, and they have come to worship God. So some of them are sympathetic, but of course not all of them in that crowd would have been sympathetic that day. We have seen already how some were mocking the disciples and accusing them of being drunk. And we cannot leave out, of course, the vast majority of Jerusalem's inhabitants, especially the Jewish leaders, who very actively sought the death of Jesus and who considered his disciples to be their enemies. And some of them very likely would have been in the crowd that day. It seems that they really like to keep their finger on the pulse of what was happening in the city. One might even call them a little bit nosy. They would have been there. Whatever the exact composition of the crowd, they were perplexed. They were amazed, Luke says. And still, they were not necessarily convinced that what was happening in front of them, what they were seeing and hearing, was a great and a glorious thing. They just didn't know what to make of it. And so Peter addresses them. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What is all this commotion about, the people want to know? It is about Jesus. Look at where Peter starts. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus. All right? You know him. You saw him. His mighty works and the wonders that he performed and the signs undeniably attested to this fact that he is from God. Jesus, you know him. You killed him. Now, to my knowledge, accusing your congregation out of the gate is not probably an approach that is taught in too many homiletics classes. But Peter's opening here demonstrates something. 
His primary purpose is not to make friends of all these people. He's answering their question in a very pointed way, and this is his point. You killed Jesus. Now consider for a moment the bravery required to make such a statement. In a city that 50 days prior had crucified Jesus, and where a lot of that hateful sentiment lingered. What a risk Peter takes to tell the truth. You might remember that he was not always so brave and not always so eager to tell the truth. Peter was a disciple of Jesus, one of the first to follow him, one of the three who were his closest friends, a member of Jesus' inner circle. He was close to Jesus. So certainly the low point of his life must have been the night when Jesus was betrayed and taken captive, the night when Peter was accused by three people at three different times of being a follower of Jesus, and he denied each of them every time, not once, not twice, but three times. He had earlier, you might remember this from your scripture reading, he had earlier professed to the Lord that he would never abandon him. Do you remember that? Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for what's going on. You're all going to fall away. I will never fall away, Peter stands. He's so confident in himself. And yet in the hour of his friend's deepest need, we read that he slept. But Jesus said, could you not watch with me an hour? Could you not pray? Don't you understand that Satan desires to sift you? But I've prayed for you. Could you pray? But he slept. And now... When it came time for him to identify with Jesus in his suffering, he did exactly what he said he wouldn't. He abandoned him. He denied he knew him. He lied about their relationship. But that was then. And this is now. And I told you last week, remember, the Holy Spirit changes everything. And what we see in Acts chapter 2 is this Peter where once in the face of persecution and possible death was timid and afraid. Right now, he's bold as a lion. The Spirit is in him. The Spirit is on him. And it has turned him from being fearful to being fearless. And he preaches fearlessly. In his commentary on Acts, the late R.C. Sproul wrote, it's easy for a preacher to be bold when he's in his own pulpit among friends. <laughs> Amen. But when there are, that's what they get that whole idea of preaching to the choir, right? Yeah, that is easy. But when there are manifestly hostile people breathing out fire, a bold preacher takes a great risk. That is why Martin Luther said that in every generation there will be the threat of the gospel going into eclipse. Every time the gospel is proclaimed clearly and boldly, opposition arises and conflict comes. A minister has never mounted a pulpit anywhere in the world who has not been absolutely aware of how dangerous it is to be bold. So when preachers are fearful, they have to come back to this text and look at the way the apostles, without respect for their lives or their worldly goods, would say, like Luther, let goods and kindred go this mortal life also, and then preach with boldness. Peter preaches with boldness. He tells the crowd in no uncertain terms, you killed Jesus. But God raised him up. 
And then he proceeds again to bring his hearers to the scripture to understand. We've seen this in Peter already just a couple times in two chapters, right? In the choosing of Matthias, he brings them to scripture so they might understand what is happening. Last week, he brings them to scripture so that he might explain what is happening. Once again, he brings them to scripture so they can understand what is happening. Peter, Peter relies on the Word of God as we ought to rely on the Word of God to inform us about our situations and about our circumstances, about what is true, about what is right. This is exactly what he does. He brings them to Scripture so that they can understand what he's talking about, in this case, to support the claim that Jesus' resurrection was foretold. Now, Peter has just quoted from Joel, and he moves to Psalm 16. And he takes a passage that is attributed to often and thought to be about David and shows how it's really messianic. It is about Jesus. Who is it that has not gone to the grave or whose body has not returned to the dust, he asks. It's not David. As great as David was, he died and he was buried. And we have his resting place right with us. We know where his tomb is. It's revered here in this land in this day. It's not David. But David was a prophet, and he foresaw the day of his descendant Jesus on the throne, and he predicted his resurrection, that the body would not suffer decay. His flesh would not endure the corruption of the grave. Not only did Scripture predict this, but we have seen it come to pass. That's Peter's message to the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 32, we're all witnesses. We've seen it. We know it to be true. So Peter's first point in his support for it, you killed Jesus, but God raised him up. In just a brief amount of time, Peter has laid out the gospel message. You see that? He has turned everyone's focus to Jesus. What's this about? It's about Jesus. He has turned everyone's focus to Jesus, and he has testified already to his perfect life, his good works, his undeserved death, and his resurrection. That's pretty good. So fast. Next, verse 33, he testifies to Christ's ascension being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So the second point of Peter's sermon is, you killed Jesus, but God exalted him. God exalted him. You tried to put him down, God has raised him up. You tried to bury him and get rid of him, and God is making him known. You tried to humiliate him, and God has exalted him. It wasn't David who ascended, verse 34, it was Jesus. It was David who wrote about this in the psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's not David who takes a seat at the right hand of the Father, but Jesus. He was crucified, he was buried, but God raised him up, and he is alive. And again, Peter's saying, we've seen him, you've seen him, you know this is true, and has ascended into heaven where he sits and rules from a position of authority and a position of favor. We call that the right hand of God. Psalm 16 tells us that's where pleasures are forevermore. The right hand of God. When we are the right man, the right woman at God's side. This is a position of power and authority. And it is from this position of favor and power and authority that Jesus is eternally exalted. And he sends forth the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 33. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So you see Peter is connecting the dots. For his audience. I can tell you what's going on. It has everything to do with Jesus. 
the man that you murdered is risen and is reigning and is responsible for what's happening right here, right now. That's what he's saying. So back to that question from verse 12. What does this mean? Peter says, you killed Jesus. God raised him up. You killed Jesus. God exalted him. And now he's pouring out his spirit on all flesh. And you, Peter says to his hearers, you blew it. You missed it. Completely. You have been on the wrong side of Jesus all along. And you have acted in deplorable ways. Even still, know this for certain. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Your bad behavior doesn't stop God from doing what God is going to do. And in this way we see, and maybe come back to the idea of our title for this series, Unstoppable. Oh, God is unstoppable. You will not stop the sovereign will of God. Yes, you blew it. You missed it. But God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Now hear that phrase, okay? Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He is Lord. One of the earliest confessions of the early church Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord, okay? Because that's what they wanted people to say in that day. Caesar is Lord. No, Jesus is Lord, but not a Lord. Lord of Lords. Jesus is King, but not a King. King of Kings, sovereign over all things. He rules, He reigns. He is the Christ, He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He is the one God promised us all along, sent by Him to save His people from their sins. That's what Peter is saying. And this also is what he's saying. Now look what you have done. Look how shamefully you have treated the gift of God for your salvation. And at this, Luke says, verse 37, they were cut to the heart. They were pierced through. They were, we would, say, we would say, they were convicted. And you should know something of conviction, right? Of a time when God convicted you, Christian. Of a time when God convicted you, when He pierced your heart with the reality of the gospel. And you came to believe what you never believed before. And you came to see what you'd never seen before. This Jesus thing is true. And I got to do something about it. This Jesus thing is true. And I've got to respond to it. By the Spirit on Peter as he preached, and on the crowd as they listened, the people were stirred to see what they had not seen before. And naturally they wondered, as anyone should wonder when told the story of Jesus, oh God, what have we done? Have you ever gotten to a point in your life where that little phrase ran through your head? Where you'd messed up so bad? And you can only say, oh God, what have I done? I can't believe I did this. 
I don't know how I'm going to get out from under this. What have I done? Very quickly, in response to that question, what have we done? Brothers, what shall we do? We've come to understand the truth about it, but what should we do? And here the message moves from confrontation to expectation. Because Peter has a very quick answer for them, and we would expect that he should, right? He spent quite a bit of time with Jesus, right? And he's heard this, I'm sure, countless times falling from the lips of his Savior. What is to be done when a person realizes that he's been wrong? What is to be done when a person realizes that she has missed the whole point? How does God direct us in such a circumstance of revelation? What does God expect of us? And Peter said to them, repent. So, brothers, what shall we do? You've laid this out for us. We believe it. We understand it. What do we do? Repent. That's that's the content of the first recorded sermon of Jesus in the book of Mark, right? Repent and believe in the gospel. To repent means to change one's mind. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. And here Peter wants his listeners to change their minds about Jesus. Just like I would pray to God that if you are here today and you do not know him as your Lord and Savior, that you too would change your mind about Jesus. Peter wants his listeners to change their minds about Jesus He wants them to stop rejecting Jesus. He wants them to stop playing games around Jesus. He sees no reason for them to keep Jesus at arm's length anymore. Hey, listen, they ask, what does this mean? He's just giving them the answer, okay? And he wants them to acknowledge their need of Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives. And you know here, he sets forth An expectation, not an invitation. Nothing wrong with invitations. We give them, we ought to. But this really is more of an expectation than an invitation. And it it is fitting with the tone and and the mood here. Peter has laid out the truth about Jesus. And such truth requires a response on the hearer. And they asked again, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized every one of you. (laughs) Think about that. Think about that big old crowd. Think about, hey, you around the corner. I know you can hear me. Every one of you, you in the front, you in the back, you in the middle, you from here, there, and everywhere, you who've lived a devout life and you who've strayed your whole life, every one of you that's listening here and has heard this message of Jesus, repent, change your mind about him, and change your behavior, and be baptized. As J.I. Packer would put it, Peter was prescribing not a formal gesture of regret, for the crucifixion, but total renunciation of independence as a way of living and total submission to the rule of the risen Lord. Is that not the very same call that we give from Christian pulpits today? Not just a a little bit of guilt that you feel about how the things went for Jesus, 
but total renunciation of independence, of your desire to live it on your own terms, this life that God has blessed you with. Total submission to the rule of the risen Lord. And that's the rub, isn't it? Isn't that what slows us all down? I can go with this to a point, but when you start telling me what to do, Jesus, I can go with this to a point, but when it starts to get in the way of what I want, Packer would say, Jesus' name carries Jesus' claim. And undergoing baptism is, for those who have reached years of discretion, a sign that the claim is being accepted. The loyalty that Peter calls the crowd to is loyalty not to him, right? But to Christ. We have a tendency, we do, to get enamored with, with people, with men, with women, to even think that they might save us in one way or another. Peter's not going down that road any more than the Apostle Paul wanted to go down that road. The loyalty he calls them to is rightly to Christ. You need to be baptized in his name, not mine. You need to repent and be baptized in the name that is in the power and in the authority of Jesus. So in context, because a lot has been made of that, and I'm not going to make much of it actually this morning. We'll get to it further down. That's one of the things I love about Acts is we get chances to visit and revisit and visit again. Um, but I want you to see in context the incredible change that, that this requirement um, would bring. He's saying to them, I want you to change your mind about Jesus and I want you to publicly identify with him in his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension. I want you to go from being enemies of Jesus to surrendering, surrendering your lives to his rightful power and authority. I want you to change teams and come to his side. You missed it, Peter says the first time. But it's not too late. It's not too late. That's Peter's message. You rejected Jesus then. But you can receive Jesus now. Repent and be baptized in his name. And this spirit whom he has poured out, whose power you are witnessing this day, will be given to you as well. You, you want to know what's going on? You don't have to be an observer. You can be a participant. Why is that? Because the promise is for you. And it's for your children. And it's for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's for you. You can have it. You rejected him, but you can receive him. It's not too late. Salvation and the indwelling Holy Spirit of God is for you. It's for your kids. It's for people everywhere. It's for every sort of person. Note this, though. It is for everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. God does the calling and we do the answering, okay? No one will come to Jesus who is not first awakened by the Spirit to call on him. One preacher put it this way. Through the Holy Spirit, he liberates people to both repent and confess their sins. He clears the way for himself, creating the desire and the response. Receiving his spirit, we find that being filled is the natural result. He prepares a place for himself, and then he moves in. 
It may seem that the decision to receive the Holy Spirit is our choice, but behind that choice is his infused desire. I love that term. His infused desire making us willing to receive. Looking back, we say, it was all the Lord from start to finish. He set me free to want what he wanted to give. And that is what happened on that day. 3,000 people were set free to want what God wanted to give them. And so I ask you this morning, friend, have you been set free for this? Have you been set free to receive what God wants to give? Have you repented? Have you been baptized? Have you received His Spirit? Do you live for the God who gave His Son to pay for your sin so that you can be forgiven and live forever with Him? Maybe you missed it the first time. Maybe you missed it the second time. Maybe you missed it the third time. Maybe you've missed it a thousand times. This gospel has been laid at your feet and you have stepped over it every time, time after time after time. Maybe you missed this about Jesus, but now you have come to see that he really is Lord and he really is Christ, risen and reigning. And he really is worthy of your worship and worthy of your life. Maybe you heard it some time ago. And maybe you believed it then and you received it. But since then, your love for Jesus has grown cold. And your heart has been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And if you are honest, you would have to say that your life ambitions have been all about you and not at all about him and bringing him glory. Maybe today is the day you change that. Maybe today is the day that you get yourself back on track. Maybe today is the day you hear the Lord calling you back to the fold. Peter's Pentecost sermon was an indictment on the crowd, as it is to all of us. We crucified Jesus. When he went to that cross, he took the sins of the world. Remember that? John the Baptist talked about him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this select group who nailed him to a cross. No. The world. We. You. Right? In the text, actually, that's the answer. Who crucified Jesus? The text says, you. How is it that a group of devout Jews who are in Jerusalem for Pentecost, many of whom were not there 50 days prior, are cut to the heart because they understood the truth of what Peter is saying is that we all have culpability in the death of Jesus. You crucified him. There's an old spiritual that asks the question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the answer is, yes, I was. Yes, I was. So Peter's Pentecost sermon is an indictment, right, on the crowd, as it is on all of us. Brothers and sisters, what shall we then do? His expectation is as efficacious now as it was then. Repent and be baptized. And receive the gift of the Holy Spirit.
Here is the gracious word of God given at Pentecost, resounding through the ages to lost and ruined sinners. You have rejected Jesus, but you can accept him now because the promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far off and for everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself.